You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to another Tuesday Home Time with Jen Bartlett. Today, Bevan Ramston from IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network, with the warning that foreign troops and police are planned to be employed for, quote, Australian emergencies, unquote. The first five years of Joan Coxage's Hard Facts for Hard Times, beginning in 1980. Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan troops are fighting, but who else is involved? I'll be speaking with Dr Tim Anderson. Looking at the results of the New Caledonia referendum vote, journalist Nick McClellan has been following that for quite a while. More from Gene Ethics with Bob Phelps and Associate Professor Tillman Ruff analysing the illness and consequences of Donald Trump's coronavirus. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy and find out what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane, listener, when after we hung on every exciting word of big economic guru Josh Fried M. Iceberg's belated budget, if we could call going into several trillion dollars debt budgeting, the verdict, whether it was positive or negative, was summed up for us by the sundry chambers of profits, with the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review speaking on their behalf, telling us... Corporate True Blue Aussie has hailed Josh Bridesburgs for handing down the right budget at the right time and backed his claim that the huge new investment allowance could be a game changer. Of course, Josh, uh, we asked naively, given the massive deficit, you'll have to increase taxes to raise the revenue required to claw that back. We have given massive tax cuts to the corporate sector. This is because we care about the workers of this country. Uh, just to clarify that, Josh, is that billions based on what they don't pay anyway? Very smart, because it won't be missed, because it was never there in the first place. And we have given billions more to the caring business class, like paying for everything they purchase. This is because we care about the workers of this country. And this conforms to our belief that the economy must rightfully be in the hands of the laissez-faire market forces private sector and the government has no role in business. Oh, uh, other than financing it. Well, obviously, other than financing it. I notice you predict unemployment. Those workers you so care about who have no work will get to 8%, lower than most people predict, but we'll concede that for the sake of, and will stay high for years. What have you done about that? We have slashed Job Seeker and will slash it even more later this year and again early next year. And we have slashed Job Keeper and will slash it even more later this year and again early next year. Uh, but there's no jobs for them. Slashing the income they bludge on will act as an incentive to get off their bums and look for work uh, for those jobs that don't exist. Exactly. We can't have them whooping it up at public expense. The government isn't made of money, you know. We can't just throw money at people. And I notice you forecast wage growth will be lower than the cost of living increases, that real wages will decrease in value. This is because we care about the workers of this country, making sure they don't price themselves out of the job market. Although, having said that, Slow wage growth continues to worry our caring business class friends. 
and they and you can't think of an obvious solution to that problem, we've racked our brains. And notice your commitment to laissez-faire market forces and government not interfering in the market extends to your very close friend and fossil entrepreneur, Trevor St. Bacon, by giving millions to upgrade his Vales Point coal mine to, quote, provide additional dispatchable generation. This is a further example of our commitment to addressing environmental issues. People claim we don't address these issues enough, but what could be more of an environmental issue than supporting more and more coal? You, you can't have it both ways. I think people feel you have it one way, but, but that aside, I hadn't realised fossil electricity generation had been locked down by coronavirus, and your friend, poor Trevor, couldn't pay to upgrade his fossil himself. Trevor will make an invaluable contribution to this handout by bringing the discipline of the market to the plant we pay for, which is quite simply not the business of government. Just finally, Josh, Big Supremo scuttled them more latch son, a.k.a. Scummo, has attacked critics who suggest you have done very little to support women in the workforce. And well he might. Some people are never satisfied. We have taken huge steps to support their men folk. Oh, well, there we have it, a budget universally applauded by the caring business class, and they're the ones who keep this economy and this country going, assisted only by the public purse footing the bill, showing they are prepared to acknowledge a small role for government and the lazy, avaricious workers who provide their profits. Oh, and to make those workers they so care about feel even more secure, they stuck in proposed legislation to put more restrictions on industry super funds to compensate for the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission they set up to hand the industry funds to their mates backfiring and nailing their mates instead. Final word on the massive corporate welfare, sorry, sorry, the budget, mentioned recently how the airline that used to be our airline, privatised the divorce it from the inefficient hand of government, has pocketed billions during the COVID handouts and is pitching state governments against each other to bid for relocating its headquarters with our very own, the pejorative Dan, declaring he had an attractive offer to make. Well... Wyndham City is putting in a bid to locate it on state-owned land earmarked for an employment hub, whatever that is. And what's this got to do with final word on the budget, I hear? Just that caring business class tourism minister Simon Birmingham urged states to stop offering the airline that used to be all sorts of public largesse, pointing out it would not create new jobs but just redistribute existing ones. And then, direct quote, no embellishment, a bidding war would represent the worst of federalism and spark a wave of corporate welfare-seeking. <laughs> now can we see why that's the final word on the budget? Other than after I wrote that, SBS News had one of those transposition problems with a six-month-old kid on the screen labelled Jim Chalmers, Shadow Treasurer. And I thought, oh, well, at least he'd make as much sense. It's obvious the dear baby Jesus looked lovingly on the Rose Garden gathering to announce bringing the law of the dear baby to the US of the UN of the US of the World Supreme Court because obviously the Holy Spirit descended on, on and blessed the gathering by giving so many of them the China virus. I now think God gave me the China virus as a blessing, best blessing ever, ever. 
Their big supremo Donald Trump or the poor displayed his Christian humility and innate modesty as the statement revealed he realises there is another God in the image of Donald, image of himself. Don't be afraid. Best pandemic ever, ever. Although not sure how reassuring that would have been to poor Melania, also struck down. Imagine how she must have felt as she looked out the White House window and saw a helicopter descending into the front garden and Donald emerging. Many cases seem okay for a few days, then relapse pretty badly after 10 days or so. So, so in Donald's case, let's hope, um, uh, sorry, let's hope, sorry, let's, can't make out the next word. Let, let's, uh, oh, let's hope it doesn't. Also feeling sick, poor Jamie Puker, scion of the sadly lamented Lord Kerry of Waterhouse, about whom Jamie attributes his filthy rich wealth to the fact that his parents had sex. Facing an inquiry, that is, into whether he's a fit and proper person to run his new Barangaroo casino planned to open in December, announcing he was sick and it was the sick, not him, that caused the odd problem they're investigating. And as the Inquisition went on, he looked sicker and sicker, showing increasing concern for the health of his private mint, a.k.a. casino, the health of his wealth, his sole purpose in life. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin didn't think the possible corruption and corporate malfeasance pointed to by the line of questioning causing poor Jamie's worsening condition even mildly relevant, concentrating on the state of his physical health and Mariah Carey's claim that during their relationship, unlike his parents, they never had sex, which the Wapping Sin saw as the big story while the rest of the media seemed to think that salacious gossip at best had absolutely nothing to do with the inquiry story, showing how they have no idea of what really matters, concentrating on incidentals like whether Jamie and the gang are fit and proper persons to run a casino and, for what my opinion's worth, which is zilch, looking at the fit and proper people running casinos around the world, they fit the bill perfectly. And also, for what it's worth, we can't blame Mariah, can we? Looking at poor sick Jamie giving evidence from his trillion-dollar luxury yacht floating off Tahiti, we can assume the Fitbit has nothing to do with the physical Fitbit. He does seem to have put back on all that weight he lost, which is, uh, how will we say it, uh, encouraging. Interesting observation, there must be some memory-erasing substance in the air around corporate crime cases or Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commissions and related inquiries because it's amazing the number of very important people holding very important positions based on the millions they're paid or make in profits who lose their memory completely once they get into the witness box. Remember, poor Bondi, he was a mental wreck on his way to being a mental wreck behind bars. We have to worry how they continue to perform in their day job, keeping the greatest little economic order going. Although there must be some antidote in the corporate or whatever church air in which they operate, because when the Inquisition's over, they make a remarkable recovery, miraculous almost. 
While our government continues to fund new fossils and upgrade close friends' coal mines, renewable coal and gas and oil, congratulations to that exemplary Middle Eastern example of liberty, freedom and democracy, Saudi, for announcing new environmental initiatives to counter climate change if there is such a thing as. Kingdom to go greener, the headline announced. See, it plans to plant more than half a million trees in an area where temperatures regularly exceed 40. That should guarantee they thrive. Although, just a thought, and I hate being a doomsayer, although, perhaps they could make a slightly more effective contribution by ceasing to dispatch fossils across the globe. As I said, just a thought, because all those emissions spewing from exhaust pipes and machines and factories must be good for us, because, again, our government plans to up oil refineries here after their multinational struggling owners explained from their New York and London boardrooms registered in the Cayman Islands, they could not continue their invaluable contribution to laissez-faire market forces without government footing the bill. There is a theme this week, isn't there? If we didn't know better, Scuttle them, a.k.a. Scummo's favourite word from last week, extortion, could spring to mind, except we know that only applies to evil, evil unions like that maritime lot doing terrible things to good, laissez-faire market forces stevedores. And we must congratulate the mainstream media for reporting on that dispute without bothering to inform us what it is actually all about other than lazy avaricious workers exposing their avaricious side and wanting to be paid. And it seems silly to mention the real issue is Pat Pricks and the stevedores wanting to slash their conditions and their jobs. Well, we can't stand in the way of progress, can we? And in industrial disputes, we know it's always the evil union's fault that the community must suffer the results of their thoughtless, selfish behaviour and never the caring employer's recalcitrance or refusal to negotiate seriously at fault. Because, for a start, caring employers would never be recalcitrant or refuse to negotiate. And why bother reporting that the pharmaceutical industry said there was no problems with medical supplies when scuttled them and Lord Rupert of Wapping and the media entrepreneurs generally knew this was one industry that didn't know what it was talking about, unlike the stevedore industry or the media industry, or finally, their fiscal and moral benefactor, the parliamentary democratic industry for that matter. Good afternoon. And don't forget to be listening for Kevin again tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for City Limits. On the 15th of October 1970, the Westgate Bridge in Melbourne collapsed during construction, killing 35 people and injuring many more. 3CR will mark this important 50-year commemoration with a special broadcast featuring audio from our archives. Oh, I think it's uh, well documented why it collapsed. Uh, the uh, engineer released every second bolt and it just couldn't handle it and down it came. But for a while it was not exactly clear who had survived. The first impression was that uh, I've never been in a war, but it certainly looked like a, a war zone. People couldn't wait and they were jumping in the water trying to get to save some of their mates. The Westgate Bridge disaster. 50 years on. Tune in at 2pm on Thursday the 15th of October.
there have been warnings recently about the increasing use of the ADF in local emergencies, such as bushfires and COVID-19. Instead of properly funding the various firefighting bodies and healthcare facilities and staff, now a bill is before Federal Parliament to enable not only the ADF and reserves, but foreign military forces and police in Australian emergencies and alarm bells are ringing. There are so many questions and I'm speaking to Bevan Ramsden, long-time peace activist and member of the Coordinating Committee of the Independent Peaceful Australia Network. Bevan, can you first identify what the government means when it says, quote, use in Australian emergencies, unquote? That's exactly uh, the, the issue. Emergencies is not defined in this amendment to the um, Defence Legislation Act. They only say the, the assistance uh, of the Defence Forces is provided to prepare for a natural disaster or other emergency that is imminent or to respond to one that is occurring or recover from one that has occurred recently. This emergency assistance is not defined anywhere other than by saying that. One has to go back to the amended act in the year 2000 um, under the Howard government to see that civil unrest uh, is considered to be an emergency in that amended act of which this current one is building upon. It says the government now, this is in the year 2000, just before the Olympic Games, by the way, and that was one of the, I made that as one of the justifications for it, federal government now has the power to call out the armed forces on domestic soil against perceived threats to Commonwealth interests, with or without the agreement of a state government. Once deployed, military officers can order troops to open fire on civilians as long as they determine that it's reasonably necessary to prevent death or serious injury. Soldiers will have greater powers than the police in some circumstances, including the right to shoot, to kill, someone escaping detention, search premises without warrants, detain people without formally arresting them, seal off areas and issue general orders to civilians. That is in the um, Defence Amendment Act of the year 2000 under the, under the Howard government, supported by the Australian Labor Party. Um, it's passed just three days before the Olympic Games started. That act makes it clear, as it stands at present, irrespective of what has just been said in this current amendment, that troops have the right to fire on civilians under circumstances and, and be deployed against civilians. And that legislation is still operative? That legislation has never been revoked. What is interesting to me is why did they have to pass an additional amendment? And so it's the additional parts in this one that I'm now interested in because it builds upon that one that's still operative. And that one that's still operative, clearly, it allows uh, troops to be used against civilians. The differences here include bringing foreign troops and foreign police into it, Jan. So they're now included under the legislation to be able to be called, uh, to be used, to assist in these emergencies. That's certainly a a very controversial one, and one that we're firstly very very concerned about having expunged from the legislation. The other addition in this, this new legislation, which builds upon that old one, is providing immunity to the troops, whether they're domestic or foreign, from civil or criminal prosecution 
for actions arising out in the performance of their duties in these emergencies. And they seem to be two important additions to the uh, legislation passed by the Howard government in 2000. When you think, Bevan, of the, the information that's coming out now about the Special Forces troops in Afghanistan and what they've been up to for many years, why should they have immunity here? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? That's a very good question. I see there's a part here. Bob Brown was one of those that opposed the legislation in the year 2000. He tried to get an amendment through that would require the manuals and protocols that apply to military interventions to be um, tabled because he said that extracts from the then current Army Manual of Land Warfare, Section 543, instructed military personnel in how to cover up the killing or wounding of dissidents. The section stated, he said, dead and wounded dissidents, if identifiable, will be removed immediately by the police. When being reported, dissidents and and, and own casualties are categorised merely as dead or wounded. He opposed that legislation. But it's interesting that in a military manual at that time, and there's no indication it's been amended, they're instructed to cover up the killing of dissidents. Gee, it goes deeper than you think. It's terrible, isn't it? Who are the foreign troops? That's not identified. Well, exactly. I mean, uh, my first thought is that that it's going to be the US Marines in Darwin uh, that come every six months to Australia and perform these war exercises with the Australian military, that they would be using those foreign troops, US Marines, in these emergency situations. But they said foreign police too in the in the in this amended act. Foreign police. What who on the earth are they relying upon? When I think of why would they do that, is it possible, Jan, that they are concerned that in certain emergent so called emergencies, uh, where they wanted to use troops against civilians, that the troops might rebel and might not act against Australian their own Australian workers and, and, and civilians, and therefore the government would have to rely on foreigners who don't have those sort of uh, limits limits to their work thinking in those situations. Uh, This is a worry because as the person who alerted us, alerted me and IPAN to this legislation, Kelly Tranta, she says, is this a preliminary to the militarisation of climate impacts uh, and climate change, that their solution for for the climate change impacts is to militarise the whole environment? in order to deal with it. Instead of dealing with the reasons for climate change, you deal with the effects, but you deal with it in a military way, and that that military way could involve confronting civilians, and that you may not be able to rely on the Australian Defence Forces to carry out orders, so you have to have foreign troops to back it up. Now, that's a terrible scenario to worry about. So what they're talking about is foreign troops or police having immunity under Australian law. That's right. How does that work? Yeah, the legislation provides immunity from civil or criminal prosecution to the Defence Forces, including foreign military, for their actions in these emergencies. The the clause reads, a protected person, and a protected person is um, uh, the Defence Forces or Foreign Forces, a protected person is not subject to any liability, whether civil or criminal, in respect of anything the protected person does or omits to do in good faith in the performance of purported 
performance of the protected person's duties. And a protected person can be a member of the Defence Force, uh, an Australian public service employee in the department, I suppose it's the Defence Department, and another person's subsection 4, which is the Foreign Military Forces and Foreign Police. I know the Civil Rights uh, Organisation is very concerned about, about this, um, writing to the ministers and so on about it. In IPAN, I'm just doing an, uh, a voice IPAN publication and calling on affiliates and individuals to um, write letters, uh, as we have, to urge the halting of this legislation so it can be examined by a committee of constitutional lawyers and civil rights lawyers to see whether it does infringe and, and break uh, even the constitutional rules, let alone what we expect our human rights to be. It's passed the first hearing in the House of Reps. It was supported by the Australian Labor Party, which also supported Howard in those original amendments to the, uh, the military court. Perhaps I wouldn't have expected the Australian Labor Party to be better than that, but I hope that at least in the Senate there might be a fair bit of opposition to it. What do you, our listeners think are listening to this program? about having foreign troops and foreign military not only be able to be called out in civil emergencies, but to be given immunity from civil and criminal prosecution. No matter what they do, it says in good faith or something, they carry out their duties in good faith. Are we moving into the, the realm of, a, of an authoritarian fascist state? Does it specify who has the power to decide what is an emergency? Is this the, the minister for something? Is this the prime minister? Is it cabinet? Does it have to go through the parliament before something like this happens? Absolutely not. That's the trouble. The chief of the defence force, the secretary or the minister, may authorise a person or persons in the defence force to carry out these duties. That's not going through parliament at all. No parliamentary scrutiny of this. It's really you're giving a lot of power to the minister, to the secretary of the defence department and to the chief of the defence force. And there's no mention there of any scrutiny or requirement of, of assent from Parliament. Nothing at all. At the very least, that, that should be required to go through Parliament for agreement before they certainly be carried out. Um, this is um, actions which could be taken against in a civil environment against um, citizens of Australia. It could be protests. It could be industrial action. I mean, we have had one case in 1949, Ben Chivalry's government, called out the troops against the coal miners, coal miners' strike. There's that precedent, and that was a Labor government too. That was used in a civil, what they call a civil emergency. Of course, we're, we're getting used to, like you are in Victoria, seeing military on the streets, aren't you? This is a follow-up, giving you some more power. Have you found any checks and balances in this paper? There's no checks and balances anywhere in the paper. I read it through it. I think it said somewhere the minister should consult with the Prime Minister. That's still um, extremely limited. That's not consulting with Parliament or getting the agreement of Parliament. I hope that we do have people listening to this program who would um, write to their Member of Parliament, at least, um, as of their organisations, and say, look, we have to halt this legislation to have it um, examined by constitutional laws, human rights laws, and it has to be amended. And at the very least, mention of immunity from prosecution and the use of foreign troops and foreign police, at least that should be removed completely from this legislation. Is this another example of laws being passed down under the cover of COVID-19? Things seem to be sneaking through 
while people's attention are elsewhere. I think it's good that they need, and this is a time when people's attention is focused on other matters. We're concerned about the health issue and getting out of the restrictions and all the other stuff. And uh, even Parliament doesn't sit in person completely at the moment, does it? It's, it's uh, half there and half not there. In fact, I think the people who aren't in Parliament, who are going in via a Zoom meeting, the MPs, I don't think they can vote on legislation under that circumstance. Is, it? is that what you understood too? Yes. So this is a time where you get things through very easily and without proper scrutiny. That's a worry too that it's coming through at this time. And all the more reason to, to pull out all stops we can to have it halted. Has there been any public comments by the Greens or those sitting on the cross benches? Not that I've seen, but I haven't looked at Hansard or whatever. I've seen any reports in the press about it. I haven't seen any mention of this in the press at all, this particular amendment. Just repeat what IPAN are doing. Who are you contacting? We've sent a letter of deep concern to the Prime Minister, the Defence Minister, to the Opposition Leader and the, Defe- the Shadow, Opposition, uh, Shadow Defence Minister, and to every MP and Senator. We emailed it to every MP and Senator, and uh, we're urging our affiliate organisations and our, all those who, who read our publications to write to their Member of Parliament too and add their voice about of concern that this should be halted and examined by a team of a committee of constitutional lawyers, civil rights lawyers, because it would appear to contravene civil rights of Australian citizens and contravene, um, maybe even contravene the Constitution. It's very important that uh, we do try and hold it, Jan. Are you concerned that foreign troops and foreign military forces could be used in civil so-called emergencies in Australia? Could be used perhaps against major protests or actions coming out of climate change against people or against industrial action? Um, are you concerned that that could happen under this legislation and that the troops and the police, foreign or local, would be immunity from prosecution, civil or criminal? And we've seen what happens in Afghanistan and how uh, our troops are uh, off the leash. At long last, the Afghanistan uh, troops of this air have examined by committee and be prosecuted, but it's yet to be seen that they get prosecuted. I've been speaking with peace activist Evan Ramsden. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. The plan over coming months is to look back on history to 1980 through the pen of writer and former politician Joan Coxidge and her series Hard Facts for Hard Times, newsletters. It's only when you read back on these articles that you realise that there was a lot going on in here in Australia and overseas, most of it far from progressive. When I spoke to Joan, my first question to her was why she decided to start Hard Facts for Hard Times back in March 1980. Well, I started writing and distributing at the beginning of 1980, and that was a few months after I was elected to Parliament. So at least I had some facilities. But I was fed up with the way the mainstream media covered current events or didn't cover them at all. And I've always believed, which sounds corny, but I still believe it, that the pen is mightier than the sword and can be a very potent weapon. So I decided to do something about it, writing about events at the time they were happening, from local to international. And the newsletters were really quite tiny to begin with, like, 
double page sort of thing. But they grew like topsy, and in the end, I ended up with quite large newsletters. But I always tried to keep the articles brief, snappy, and hopefully readable, and peppered with a load of tiny cartoons. And the interesting part, I was going through them for your program, Jan, and I thought most of the issues are just as relevant today as when they were written, which says a lot about how things are going, I reckon. Well, we're looking at 1980 to 1985, and people might think a lot was happening, but it certainly was. There was a lot happening, actually. The first one I put out was in March 1980. Now, I covered youth unemployment, so there's nothing new about that. That was going on then. Agent Orange and uranium, our opposition to uranium mining, because that was a real battle that was going on. And, of course, Fraser was the Prime Minister then. He was an arrogant bastard. Featured his mug on the front of every newsletter, you know, just to emphasise what he was doing, because, you know, he had a mere culpa later on, apparently. I don't know how genuine it was. I suppose it was. But back then he was hated. But he also, of course, played such a key role in the coup that got rid of Whitlam. So he was a very popular man with the Labor movement. So issue two, and that came out June 1980. I sort of, you know, brought them out fairly regularly back then. And that was about his absolute arrogance, because he couldn't help himself. He just looked such a bloody arrogant sod. And about the factories closing down in the West, and that was happening right back then. The, you could say the death of manufacture was going on right from the word go. In fact, my first speech in Parliament was about unemployment and the loss of manufacture and jobs, because the West was, well, it was the place where all of that happened more than any other part of Melbourne. And so I also covered Jika Jika, that was a horrible part of Pentridge Prison, special branch and mental services on the point of collapse. Now, what's new about that? We're seeing the consequences, aren't we, today? Well, it's like everything that goes around comes around and keeps going around, I think, don't you reckon? Absolutely. So that was issue two, concentrating. And then issue three, I suppose I had a go, more of a go on Fraser. He uh, was attacking unions in a nasty way, and he, he, he was attacking the socialist left of the Labour Party, the Victorian socialist left, and that's when it was really a progressive force inside the ALP, not like it is today. Back then it really was a tough, very progressive group of people who were determined to try and make a difference. And certainly I attacked his role in this 1975 coup, and I also raised the issue of Alcoa, the aluminium company, of America, totally owned by the United States, by the Mellon family, from memory. They paid hardly any tax, again, what's new, and they were given all sorts of uh, goodies from various state governments seeming to be desperate to get them to build their rotten energy-sucking plant in their states, which is pretty weird when you think of it. And I asked the question then, and that's back then, and very relevant today, is... Do we live in a democracy? And I think the answer, we'd have to be very ambivalent about that one, don't you reckon? Mm. There's so many descriptions of democracy now, aren't there? They call democracy out-of-control capitalism, and that's called a democracy. Capitalism is democracy, which it isn't, but that's how they've sort of transposed meanings of words. It's like World War II has now become the Holocaust. 
when it was a part of World War II, not World War II. And democracy, you would think, would mean power of people. People don't have a great deal of power in our society or any other society today. It's, it's owned by big business and powerful forces over which we have no voting rights at all. In the, and then I did a special Christmas edition in 1980. It's an important one because that was focusing on the role of East Timor and what was happening there and the disgusting behaviour of Indonesia vis-à-vis East Timor and exposed some of the messages that had gone between the Foreign Office and Commonwealth Office in London and the British Ambassador to Indonesia. And that was exposing some of the bastardry that was going on at that time. And I also, in that edition, raised the issue of Northwest Cape. And that was handed over to the Yanks. And again, Northwest Cape was a uh, nuclear submarine facility equipped with ballistic missiles. They were handed over holus bolus, this land and the rights that they could do with whatever they liked, by the Menzies government to the Yanks. And repressive laws were passed back then to curb protests but it was such a remote place it would be very hard to get to to protest against anyway so that was that particular issue again you know it's interesting isn't it they're all still relevant today and then in May 1981 it was I concentrate again my lead article was about El Salvador and that's a tiny Central American Republic of about five million and the terrible things that were happening there and the uh, the, America, the role of the United States in that part of the world. And, of course, I did get visit El Salvador myself a few years later in 1984, and I could see for myself what was going on there. It was absolutely, absolutely horrendous. And then I also mentioned Nugent Hand. That was the first time I, I raised the operations of Nugent Hand, and that was a merchant bank that wasn't a bank. It was a CIA front and did everything but bank and was based in Sydney and had played a most terrible role. I put out a little booklet later on about Nugent Hand, but this was the first time I raised it in Hard Facts for Hard Times. So it was actually a conduit for secret CIA operations around uh, Asia and Latin America. They set up branches all around the world, run by counterinsurgency experts rather than bankers. And the top of the list who was running the bank, so-called bank, was William Colby. And he was the former director of the CIA. And he was listed as an official legal counsel for that bank because he was a lawyer. So it had nothing to do with cash or very little to do with cash, but was an outfit set up to move large sums of money. It was heavily involved in drugs, arms dealing, and in linking covert intelligence activities with those of organized crime. It operated without any supervision or anything else. And that was a, a very evil, evil bank. And then I also raised the uh, new migrant centre. See, I was always talking about local as well as the international stuff. And this was a new migrant centre that opened in Footscray. But, of course, it was also very political in the sense that prominent members of the Astasha were involved in that opening and were employed there. And, of course, the Astasha were Croatian fascists who were given support by the government of the day. And I also mentioned back then the establishment of the paramilitary Victorian Police Special Operations Group. That's when it first started back then in 1981. 
and we've seen what's happened to the Victoria Police since that time. It's become a, more of a paramilitary mob than a normal police force. I don't think they're terribly interested in traditional policing, actually. I think they prefer to run around with heavily armed to the teeth, with guns hanging from every pocket and belt and everything else. And that's the way they play it now. Well, issue six, that was August 1981. That was about state repression. And that was about Smorgan. Now, Smorgan ran meatworks in uh, the western suburbs, West Footscray, and a heavily polluting mob. They didn't give a stuff about the locals. And what they used to do was let all the pollution go, run out at, you know, in the early hours of the morning. And that was when the so-called, or the EPA, which wasn't worth two bob anyway, were not working. I think they worked nine till five. And I raised the whole issue of Smorgans. I drew up a petition back then against them, so I presented that to Parliament. And I also raised the fact that the unemployment figures were dodgy, that they were cooked, still are, about razor gag cuts. And, and I wrote an anti-uranium letter to Bill Hayden, because I was the president of the Anti-Uranium Society back then, asking him to do something about it because it was sort of policy that wasn't being implemented back then and then in issue seven that came out at the end of the year in december 81 and that was about the dodgy definition of consensus and the power of the media because consensus meant you know that you avoided any any strong issue and coming out with this dodgy definition and i talked about the alcoa again and about solidarity in Poland. And some of you might remember that was a, theoretically anyway, a union movement in, in Poland that was actually turned out later, was run by the CIA. It was totally phony. And I wrote about more about the repression going on in Latin America. And then in issue eight, I'd actually increased the hard facts to 10 pages, believe it or not, whole 10 pages. So that was when Thatcher entered the scene, and God help us there. And he had, I think he had Reagan in America and Thatcher in Britain, and they played the most awful role, terrible role. That was about U.S. spies and right-wing journalists. Four nuns were murdered in El Salvador, and there was an attack on a New Zealand peace activist who I knew very well and worked with closely, Owen Wilkes. Haven't heard about him in years, but back then, very close to Owen Wilkes. We, you know, we used to join forces with good people in other countries back then. Issue um, number nine, a lot of that was about a book I co-authored with Jerry Harrant and Ken Caldicott, and that was rooted in secrecy. And it's still there, still being sold, still being read. Because although you could say it needs updating, the analysis was spot on and still make a deal of sense. And that was the first time I really raised the Hilton bombing and the, the lies that were told about the Hilton bombing and how they framed three young men, including Tim Anderson, who I know you've had a lot to do with and often have him on the program. And they were totally framed and they were jailed for quite a long time before there were appeals and they were eventually released from jail and totally exonerated. Ten was about women's peace camps and I took part in one outside Pine Gap in Alice Springs. I visited one in the United States, or I took part actually in one in the United States and Greenham Common. I visited Greenham Common and that was a terribly important initiative taken by women around the world to draw attention 
after the situation that was going on with the increasing warlike tendencies of the countries around the world. And I thought the most important was probably Greenham Common, because they were the gutsiest women you'd ever meet, living under the most appalling conditions and treated brutally treated by the by the police. And also a nuclear-free Victoria. That's when John Cain brought that in, which we supported. But unfortunately, nuclear ships were still able to enter our ports. And I used to raise that with him. He got very cranky with me because he didn't like anybody, you know, having a go. And then issue 11 was November 83, and that was to do with the, the trails on uranium mining and the role of Bob Hawke. And he came into the picture and he has played a lousy role and I don't need to tell anybody about that. And that's when Wilfred Birchard died. He actually was there when the nuclear bomb was unleashed on Hiroshima and he reported it. And he was never forgiven for that, never forgiven. He had his passport stolen, he was never able to enter Australia and he was hounded from then on in because he had exposed what had actually happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki at that time. I also talked about the phony Harvard Foundation that was used by a lot of trade unionists here to attend so-called sort of seminars. They'd be having their fares paid to go to the United States theoretically to, use, to learn about trade unionism, when in fact it was to learn how to smash trade unionism and I actually went to Boston to suss out this outfit and I found it just didn't exist. It had nothing whatever to do with Harvard University. It was totally off campus and extremely dodgy. So there you go. And then on issue 13, more on Nugenhand and I called it a rush to the right. Again, I think very relevant today where we're already in a very, very right-wing situation. So basically, basically that was about it. Would you like to finish this segment, Joan, by reading your poem on God, Nugan Hand and Company? Nugan Hand and Company. Once again, it's Christmas. Let's join the revelling band. They've given us a present, the report on Nugan Hand. Our noble Justice Stewart, he's had a lot to say. The upshot of it all is, it was not the CIA. Now, Nugan Hand, they ran a bank where nearly everyone was Yank. Army, Navy, Air Force was there for all to see. Amongst such august citizens, no CIA could be. The evidence is plain to see, so why make so much fuss? It couldn't be the CIA. They've never heard of us. Frank Nugan came from nowhere and now has gone and went. His corpse in his Mercedes with gun and bullets spent. No matter what he might have done, we know where he will go. His calling card was labelled God, Nugan Hand and Co. Michael Hand, a likely lad, he was a green beret. He might have known a thing or two, but Michael ran away. By selling arms in Africa, he had a good old spree. But where he got the arms from, it's a great big mystery. The evidence is plain to see, so why make so much fuss? It couldn't be the CIA. They've never heard of us. A Cuban man, Rick Chavey, worked for the CIA to see that in the Bay of Pigs, no pigs would get away. His CIA boss, Tommy Kleins, and others of his bent, all went to work for Nugan Hand. 
By merest accident, another Edwin Wilson, who now resides in jail, built Task Force 157, which helped make Whitlam fail. A terrorist from way back, CIA for many a year, he worked for Nugan Hand because he liked Australian beer. The evidence is plain to see, so why make so much fuss? It couldn't be the CIA. They've never heard of us. There was Donald Elgin Beasley. There was Earl Cock Brigadier and General Leroy Manor with connections far and near. There was Shackley, Parker, Judge and Yates who moved in areas grey. And also, just to cap it off, we had agents P and J. Judge Stewart, he searched long and deep. He laboured many a day and every name uncovered before the stamp of CIA. But when he came to write reports, it was just as we had feared. The evidence that he had sought had all been disappeared. The evidence, it can't be found. So why make so much fuss? They've gone and asked the CIA. They've never heard of us. Away with Cinderella with fairy tales so grim. Away with Christian Anderson, for who the hell wants him? This Christmas, our fantasy can really have a wrought by reading to our children the Nugent Hand Report. Did you also read it to Parliament? Yeah. What was the reaction? Silence. Stunned silence from my mob just as much as the mob on the other side. <laughs> it was very funny, actually. But I used to do that every Christmas. I'd read out a poem and be always poems of this, you know, nature. Stuff that you couldn't get in the media or anything, but you could do it in a poem. I thought it was quite a good way to do it. So, Joan, that was your first five years in Parliament. Yeah. How did you find it? Very frustrating. I, I found the most uh, rewarding part was working in the electorate, just giving a helping hand to people, because you could do that, actually. You could use your position to actually help people. And a lot of the others I noticed thought the electorate work was inferior. They thought the most important work was in Parliament, which is crap, especially in the upper house. It was all weeks and gowns and formal language. I wondered what I'd struck when I first went in there, and I was one of the first two women in its 127-year history, and the other woman was an extreme right-winger from the Liberal Party who actually got up during a debate on rape and blamed women for being raped. You know, that's even embarrassing her own lot. So I was the, you know, the token woman, and I had to fight for everything, absolutely everything. And I shot them all because I wore pants into Parliament, and none of them thought that was a very nice thing to do. I mean, it was just incredible. But it changed a bit, a bit. But I, I certainly did uh, breach a few of the protocols. For example, I was dared by an age reporter to um, sit on top of the, the canopy over the president's chair. It was, it was a dangerous thing to do, but anybody daring me, you know, I just can't help but to take it up. And so here I was in boots. I could have fallen and killed myself because it's quite high, actually, above the, the chair. So I sat there and he took the photo. I used that for the front cover of my book, Cold Tea for Brandy. And after that, I was taken off several committees. I think I was the chair of a couple of committees. So I was punished by being removed because I thought I'd smeared the august role of Parliament by daring to, to do that. 
Oh, God. And then I did leave, let a stink bomb off in the upper house, and that was to draw attention to smorgans letting off their pollution in the western suburbs. They were not happy about that, but the western suburbs people knew exactly why I did it, and I got better support from them, which is what really mattered. And we'll hear more from writer and former politician John Coxedge on the program in a month's time. For the first time, the Australian Friends of Palestine Association will hold the annual Edward Said Memorial Lecture via Zoom. On the 17th of October, former Western Australian MP Melissa Park will present her lecture, The Conscious Pariah, How Distortions of Facts, Contortions of Logic and Assassinations of Character are used against critics of Israel while it poses as the plucky democracy and the eternal victim. For free registration, visit www.afopa.com.au. That's www.afopa.com.au. Australian Friends of Palestine Association is a 3CR supporter. Armenian and Azerbaijani forces have been engaged in unrelenting fighting over the breakaway Nagorno-Karabakh region. And to find out why, I spoke at the weekend with Dr Tim Anderson. Tim, first, many people would not have heard about the area known as Karabakh before or the reasons for the conflict in the Caucasus, but I imagine it's had a, a long history. Is that correct? The problem is when you unpick countries that have come together that have brought people together effectively. The Soviet, the old Soviet Union brought together a lot of different groups and nationalities and ethnicities and so on, like the former Yugoslavia. And then when you unpick that omelette, it's very messy because you've got people who've moved around, they've mixed, they've intermarried, all of these sorts of things. I think that's one way to start talking about the Caucasus, which is a bottom end of a mountain range between two seas, you know, let's say between Russia and Iran, basically. And in that area, we've got Georgia, we've got Armenia, got Azerbaijan, and some other smaller states which aren't widely recognised, including the Nagorno-Karabakh enclave between Armenia and Azerbaijan, the one we're going to be talking about. But then you've also got uh, Absakia and South Ossetia, parts that have broken away from Georgia and are now allied with Russia. You know, so that whole area in the South Caucasus is a big mess, frankly, you know, politically. Well, how did the Armenian area end up in Azerbaijan? Azerbaijan is a, a Muslim state with its own history, which you know, predates the Soviet Union, but has its own changes that took place during the, the Soviet Union on the Black Sea, north of Iran. And ethnically speaking, there is also an Azerbaijan province within Iran. Now, Armenia is next to it between Azerbaijan and Georgia and, and Turkey, but Armenia has its own history, and Armenia is largely Christian. And remember, there was a huge ethnic cleansing of Armenians from the old Ottoman Empire. At the end of the Ottoman Empire, they fled into Armenia, into Syria, into Iran, basically. So there are Armenian populations, even in, in Lebanon, there are Armenian populations all around the world. But there's a state called Armenia, too, which was part of the former Soviet Union and is sitting in there surrounded by these other states in the South Caucasus. So the conflict we're talking about really is a, an enclave between Armenia and Azerbaijan called Nagorno-Karabakh, and that is 
overwhelmingly Armenian in ethnicity, but historically it was linked to Azerbaijan. There's a reason for that, that it was to do with the changes brought about under Stalin in the 1920s as a type of a move in relation to the newly created Turkey back then. Remember, Turkey was the, the nucleus of the old Ottoman Empire that appeared as a new modern state, and there was a, some politicking going on between the Soviet Union under Stalin and, and Turkey back at that time. So there's always been a this sort of contradiction of a an area which is now a has been a self-proclaimed republic, not widely recognised, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which is overwhelmingly Armenian in ethnicity, but historically belongs to Azerbaijan in terms of international recognition. That's the dilemma. Now, after the Soviet Union broke up in the early 90s, um, there was a war over this precise issue with Azerbaijan trying to reclaim that territory and uh, effectively... They didn't succeed in that. There were several years of war, and there was a type of a truce. I think it was in 1994. And the situation, more or less, has been that unstable sort of um, status quo since, you know, for the last 25 years, 26 years, until recently when the war's um, been inflamed again, with Azerbaijan trying to get back that enclave, which historically had been part of Azerbaijan, which, which was always overwhelmingly Armenian. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Why did they choose this time to get it back? Ah, well, that's the, that's the big question, isn't it? To understand that, we have to see who's behind the military conflict, and that's Mr Erdogan in Turkey. Here, of course, the historical parallels are rather frightening because Erdogan has been seen in, in the last decade as a neo-Ottoman type of ruler who wants to resurrect a Muslim Brotherhood type of network, and hence he's currently occupying large parts of North Syria. He sent mercenary jihadists into Libya to try and get a influence across there, meanwhile cutting across the Mediterranean and inflaming his neighbours, the Greeks in particular. And uh, he's also been sending forces, jihadists and mercenaries, to Azerbaijan to help them in the, the process of trying to reclaim Nagorno-Karabakh. Also, perhaps more critically, air power, so that the air power from Turkey, that is to say Turkey's superior technology, because Azerbaijan is a small, it's an oil-producing country, but it's small, and Armenia is small too. So when you have a very big country, you know, Turkey's one of the very big countries of the region, like Iran, puts its air power into, into the Azeris' hands, then uh, they've now got the initiative, basically. They're starting to carve out parts of territory on the uh, eastern side of the Nagorno-Karabakh enclave. But the Armenian people have a, a long and bitter memory, haven't they, of, of Turkey while he's inflaming the situation yeah. there. That's right. And um, because this precisely involves effectively a, a Muslim Brotherhood type of regime, although it's a funny sort of one because Azerbaijan is largely Shia Muslim, which is not the Ottoman, Erdogan, Muslim Brotherhood, line, they, in fact, there's new uh, tensions have been created because the jihadists they've used against Syria have been extremely anti-Shia, but Azerbaijan happens to be Shia and happens to be more closely in religious terms linked to Iran, but nevertheless politically linked to Turkey now. In the middle of this, you've got, um, as I said, overwhelmingly, it's um, well over 90% of that enclave is Armenians who are effectively now at risk of being ethnically cleansed out of their area, 
perhaps into Armenia, perhaps into Iran. Iran and Syria are the, are the countries that took the largest numbers of refugees from the Ottoman ethnic cleansing of the past. How far is this area from the border of Russia? There's a direct border with Azerbaijan and Russia, and indeed there's this sort of economic, well, a large gas pipeline that's intended to go from Iran through Azerbaijan to Russia. So there's a, there's a north-south infrastructure project there. So Russia is very close, and Russia is also, of course, you know, more or less the um, successor to the old Soviet Union in terms of what used to exist as the old Soviet Union there. Armenia is cut off, but Azerbaijan has that border with both Iran and, uh, and Russia, and the, both Iran and Russia are concerned, but in, in a sense, you could say that Russia is more on the side of Armenia, basically, partly culturally, but both have been very reluctant to intervene, even though Turkey is obviously intervening extremely heavily, and Turkey really, we can understand why now from the fact that Mr. Erdogan has been pressing his ambitions, his regional ambitions, um, as we know, particularly in Syria, but also in Libya, and now into the Caucasus. So is the gas pipeline the goal at the end? And are there other minerals there that they would be fighting over? Look, I'm of the view that um, even though gas pipelines can be big investments of several billion dollars, they are never really the drivers of these wars and the hegemonic ambitions. You know, there's a there are plans to try and entrench regional power, whether it's by the U.S., whether it's by the competitors with the U.S. to try and dominate regions. And gas pipelines are big projects, but they can be changed, and they do change. You look at Russia, for example. Russia has had pipelines going through Ukraine that was blocked, so they put another one going south through Turkey or north through the North Sea. You know, these things can... They're big projects, but they're not really the drivers of the geopolitics, I don't believe. Well, who is there to stop Erdogan in his quest for conflict in the area? That's the big dilemma. There is, you know, potentially uh, it's possible that Armenia could call on Russia to help it, but then there's this conflict within Armenia, which is really that Armenia, like Lebanon, for example, like Ireland is one of these countries with with a very big diaspora, and the diaspora has some influence on what happens, but it's said that perhaps the current leader of Armenia, who hasn't intervened strongly to support the Armenian enclave in the Karabakh, which is a self-proclaimed republic, Artsakh, he hasn't intervened strongly enough. And some people are saying maybe he's making some manoeuvres to try and get closer to NATO, you know, because there's, of course, there's always this um, great game in the background of the competition between the US and Russia, even though the US is a long way from, from the Caucasus. Uh, you know, the U.S. obviously has a very big game going on in Eastern Europe trying to push NATO eastwards and, and confront Russia there. But it's succeeded in the sense of having a Georgia, which is very anti-Russia and very pro-U.S., and we've got those little breakaway republics between Georgia and, and Russia, for example. But so far, Armenia hasn't called on Russia's help to intervene, and we know that Russia has been playing, under Mr. Putin, has been playing this strategic game to keep Turkey, say Erdogan's Turkey, as a strategic partner to counterbalance the influence of the US in the region, basically. So it's a difficult game that's going on. Iran, also the other big player in the region, is concerned because the conflict has already, to some extent, spilt over into uh, into northern Iran there. But Iran is also 
reluctant to intervene. And in a sense, you know, there are a lot of contradictions there because in religious sense, uh, Azerbaijan and in an economic sense, Azerbaijan is a potential partner for Iran. But and, and on the other hand, Armenia has had a good relationship with Iran, too, you know, so there aren't very obvious, clear dividing lines where you would say one big power will come in to confront Turkey. And I guess that's the advantage of Erdogan at the moment. In, the, in effect, he's able to swing the balance there because of Turkey's um, resources and technology. But nevertheless, is Erdogan using the conflict to shore up slipping support at home? That's also an important point. I think that's right, because there's serious economic problems within Turkey and his you know, neo-Ottoman project to you know, expand the influence of Turkey in the region is certainly a big distraction at the least, you know, and, and that's sort of a sense that swells this nationalist come Muslim Brotherhood pride of the big project in the region. Here he is helping a, a Muslim state, Azerbaijan, to reclaim what is rightfully theirs in, in the region and therefore, you know, establish the big brother status of of Ankara, of Turkey, the, the, the new Ottoman uh, network, basically, which stretches into northern Syria and across the Mediterranean to Libya and so on into the Caucasus. There's certainly a big factor in terms of him trying to shore up his domestic support. But as usual in situations like this, it's always the the people on the ground, the, the citizens who suffer the most. Well, that's right, and that means on both sides, that is to say, the Turkish TV, TRT world, the Turkish channel is running stories daily of citizens in Azerbaijan seeking shelter, you know, bomb shelters from the shelling from coming from the Armenian forces in Nagorno-Karabakh and on the other side, the Armenian media, and Armenia has quite a big diaspora media is running all of the, the fears and the threats of the replication of Again, another ethnic cleansing of Armenian people by the Turks, by the new Ottomans, basically. So there's um, no one wins in a war like this, basically, and ordinary people are certainly, um, you know, being hurt by it. Well, they've had a go once, haven't they, at stopping the fighting? What's going to stop it? Well, well, there were years of years of war, as I said in the early 90s. There were several years of war in the early 90s. There have been some briefer conflicts in recent times but after several years of war in the early 90s there was this truce um, which led to a status quo more or less a sort of a balance of forces there because the logic of Nagorno-Karabakh being overwhelmingly Armenian in, in ethnic terms even though it's not an integrated part of Armenia even though there's still a sort of a, an uneasiness about the political resolution of those borders because of the historical imperatives of you know, the old Soviet Union allocated that enclave to Azerbaijan back in the 1920s in, in some sort of power play with, uh, with Turkey back then. Unfortunately, those historical accidents or mistakes or whatever um, are being used for this current conflict. And as I said, it's only because of the intervention of Turkish military there that the situation, that in a sense, they're breaking the old deadlock, which um, by an overwhelming force to the Yazari side of the conflict. There isn't a simple solution. There is no simple solution there, basically. I mean, I think on the Armenian side, they'll be hoping that Russia would intervene or at least use it, could officers in some sort of way. But it seems that Erdogan is intent on, you know, vindicating the historical claim of 
Azerbaijan there and with a, a very strong Muslim Brotherhood ethos, even though there are contradictions. So, you know, for example, some of the jihadists who have been apparently paid a lot of money to go to Azerbaijan have said publicly that they're horrified to find that they're fighting alongside Shia and to them, to sectarian Islamists from a, a Salafist background, as we know, you know, with the experience in, in Syria in, in, over the last decade, they hate Shia Muslims more than Christians or anyone else, basically. So it's not without its contradictions. But I think the problem is really that the Turkish air power has been very important and has allowed the Turkey Azerbaijan forces to carve out some sections already of, of that enclave. And they are now consolidating there, you know, and potentially they want to take the whole enclave back, which will mean effectively, you know, colonizing or recolonizing quite a large area, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people who are overwhelmingly Armenian and are, are resisting that type of regime, that type of Muslim Brotherhood regime, which was precisely the one that they attribute to the so-called Armenian genocide of 100 years ago. And coming up to what I would believe will be a very cold winter. That's true also. That part of the world is particularly cold. It's mountainous territory. I mean, apparently that makes it easier in war terms to defend. That is to say, some people have said, well, the part that the Turkish Azeri forces have reclaimed or, in their view, liberated are low-lying but perhaps agricultural lands, whereas um, to defend against an invading force, the the Armenian or the, the Republic of Artsakh, the Nagorno-Karabakh self-proclaimed republic, has the advantage of that mountainous territory to defend it from an invading forces. These are people who are used to the weather of where, of where they live, but there are also some strategic implications for it being a mountainous area. And that was an interview I recorded with Dr Tim Anderson after 10 hours of talks broken in Moscow, resulting in a ceasefire agreement. It was soon broken. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Close but not close enough. That's how the pro-independence supporters would have judged the results of the election recently in New Caledonia. 53.26% to remain within the French Republic, while 46.74 voted for independence. After a vote in New Caledonia, three provinces were asked to vote on the question, do you want New Caledonia to cede to full sovereignty and become independent? Just prior to the election, journalist and researcher Nick McClellan facilitated a webinar at Griffith University, which I played an edited version of on this program, in which leading political activists spoke about their policies leading to independence. But it was not to be, and I spoke again with Nick at the weekend. Nick, it was a long campaign, or I suppose you could say it began with the results of the first referendum two years ago, which, which surprised many at the size of the pro-independence vote. You followed it. Could more have been done? No, I think the independence movement saw today's referendum as just another step on the path to decolonisation. 
And in some ways, this struggle has been going on since the 1970s, and particularly since the creation of the Independence Front, National Liberation Front, in 1984. Referendum that was held on Sunday is part of an agreement called the Numir Accord, which was signed more than 20 years ago in 1998. And it's quite unique in the history of decolonisation because apart from this 20-year transition, which has seen the, the movement of powers from Paris to Numia to a local government, local congress in New Caledonia, the final decision on what they call the sovereign powers, defence, foreign policy, courts, the police, really the powers of a sovereign nation, was held the process. But uniquely in the history of decolonisation, the Namir Accord allowed for not one, but up to three referendum. It said that if the first referendum people voted no against independence, then a second referendum could be called by a third of the members of the Congress. Once again, if the second referendum says no, there's the possibility of a third referendum. Coming from a low base, the independence movement felt that it had time to gradually win over support from other people in New Caledonia, because historically the uh, call for independence has come from the indigenous Kanak people, that's the colonised Melanesian people of New Caledonia, but they only make up about 40% of the population, and so they have to win support from migrants and settlers who come, uh, the descendants of, you know, indentured labourers during the colonial period, Kaldosh farmers who've been around for generations, but also more recent migrants from places like Wallace and Futuna, which is another French dependency. You know, you think of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia struggling with just 3% of the population to get voice, get treaty, get uh, recognition. The Kanaks are a much bigger minority, but still a minority. And so they have to draw support from elsewhere. And that's where these three referenda are seen as stepping stones towards a final decision in a couple of years' time. Why New Caledonia having three choices? This is something that the, the FLNKS fought for and died for, many of the activists. You know, in the 1980s, there were armed clashes between the French state and the independence movement, culminating in the Uvea massacre of uh, May 1988. The agreement that was signed at the time, um, uh, the Matignon Accord, put off uh, a decision on political status for another 10 years. And instead of having a referendum in 1998, the Canucks said, OK, we'll, we'll accept a deal that there should be a deferred referendum, not to be held immediately, but put off for some time. And there's only two or three other examples where people have deferred decision on political status in the world. Um, you know, Timor, for example, when uh, the Indonesian Saharto regime collapsed, Timor rushed relatively quickly to a referendum. You know, the collapse of the Sahato regime in 1998, Timorese voted in 1999 overwhelmingly for independence. It's only in Bougainville and in South Sudan that people have said, OK, let's have a period of 10 or 20 years where the colonial power, the administering power, can hand over some authority. We can address enormous inequality in the economy and social rights um, between the indigenous people and the wealthy French people. We can set up our own political institutions and run. And so over that 20-year transition, for example, New Caledonia's got control of education. Firstly, uh, in 2000, education was handed over from Paris to Numia. Secondly, uh, secondary education in 2012, and they're still struggling over the university, University of New Caledonia. 
but that allowed the local authorities to rewrite the history books and literally, you know, the geography and history books uh, uh, for all secondary students were rewritten. So instead of saying our ancestors, the Gauls, they talked about the peoples of Melanesia. They talked about Australia as a neighbour instead of uh, Germany as a neighbour. All those fundamental, you know, anti-colonial steps have been part of the struggle. A large proportion of legislative, administrative power has been handed to the Canucks during this 20-year process. They're part of the multi-party government, both supporters and opponents of independence in a multi-party government. But the real crunch is the FLNKS and other parties supporting independence say, we want to move to sovereign independence. We want our own nation. Many French people, particularly French migrants who've come recently, uh, are worried about the loss of their privilege, loss of uh, an EU passport, many of the subsidies that France has provided to keep them in the lifestyles to which they're accustomed. But the Canucks feel that they can much better uh, manage affairs and other supporters of independence do as well by becoming an independent nation. And so they see this referendum that was held last Sunday, uh, which was very narrow, a uh, narrow victory for the no vote, but saw a rise uh, in the independence vote, put them within striking distance of uh, the third referendum. As at this time, how much economic power does France still hold over New Caledonia? France provides a significant amount of funding to New Caledonia through grants and loans. They pay for a number of public servants, so who are employees of the government of France rather than the government of New Caledonia, and there are subsidies in areas such as education and health and and so on. But uh, the FLNKS, during the referendum campaign, circulated a lot of material, and indeed I, I was in New Caledonia for the 2018 referendum and went out with FLNKS teams in rural areas as they held meetings in the, the villages. I remember vividly in one night in Uvea where an older woman was giving them hell, well, what's going to happen to her pension? And they had a, a game plan to explain how public finance could be changed, how there would be benefits if they were independent, and while money from France would, would uh, be reduced, obviously, um, it wouldn't dry up completely. France maintains relations, financial, economic aid with all their former colonies. But more importantly, independence would open up to other financial sources, everything from the World Bank to the IMF, aid from countries like Australia and New Zealand and the EU and other places. More importantly, it would give the country the opportunity to address the core challenges that they face. For example, at the moment, New Caledonia is not a signatory to the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. France is the signatory to that agreement, not surprisingly given it's called the Paris Agreement. But uh, the New Caledonians say if we could run our own climate change policy, it would be a policy that's relevant to us as a small island state in the South Pacific, not the sort of policy that comes out of Paris. And on a whole range of areas around health, preventative health, around education, bringing Kanak languages into the school, around trade with neighbouring countries, why... um, not be independent. I think one of the striking things was that this referendum on Sunday uh, came in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic. And when I interviewed a number of people in the lead-up to the referendum, I said, look, isn't the the current pandemic, the global recession associated with it, going to make people scared of making the leap into the future? And a number of people on both sides of politics, from the Yes campaign and the No campaign, said that, in fact, the coronavirus pandemic had forced New Caledonians to think about 
their location in the world, in just in terms of travel and transport and tourism, of markets for their exports, particularly nickel and so on. New Caledonia's had 27, 28 cases of COVID through strict border controls. They've got the uh, pandemic under control. They don't have community transmission. And France has had nearly 32, more than 32,000 deaths, hundreds of thousands of cases. So people say if we could manage our own borders, if we could control our health system better, that would enable us to do that. And I interviewed the president of New Caledonia, Thierry Sonta, who's a loyalist, a, you know, a, an opponent of independent, a, a man very conservative in his politics, but uh, loyal to France. But he was talking about wanting to be part of a tourism bubble um, to revive international tourism. But he was talking about a bubble with New Zealand, not a bubble with France. Um, so I think even conservative anti-independence people are beginning to engage with the reality that their economy, their exports, um, their tourism is tied to the region and not to Europe. If independence was gained in two years' time, where does that leave control over the the sea resources? Does that automatically go to the people? Well, the independence movement, uh, the the FLNKS, has talked about a three-year transition in the case of a yes vote, in the case of a yes majority. The idea would be that uh, the government of New Caledonia would negotiate with France to um, basically change the French constitution, which is a legal technical requirement that, that's, that was required, and that would take some time. Uh, they would negotiate, obviously, with the United Nations to become a member of the UN. They would uh, start seeking to join multilateral organisations, everything from the World Health Organisation to, to other bodies and so on, as an independent republic rather than as part of France. So there's a, a series of steps It would also involve negotiations, as I say, um, about replacing French public servants or people paid by France uh, within the country. And they'd be looking to other partners, um, obviously neighbours like Australia, but also uh, international agencies for support in areas around training and and staffing and things like that. Um, There's very few Canac doctors, for example, um, after nearly 170 years of colonisation. You know, it's been a central failure of the colonial project in France that the indigenous people have been denied good education opportunities. And it's only now in recent years that there's been a a new generation of leaders coming up with university education. So those sort of changes would take some time. And it would only be, um, it's proposed after a three-year transition, that France would formally renounce sovereignty, and at that point obviously renounce sovereignty over the land and the waters of New Caledonia. But for all effects and purposes... A yes vote will mean there's no reversibility from that. Uh, that's the decision. And it would be a matter of doing all the legal and constitutional changes required before the of Kanaki New Caledonia would run up its own flag. And we'll hear more about the results of the New Caledonia elections on the program next week with Nick McClellan. This lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else. I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to via Save the Children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that 
far right wing now, but she might be quite left. She might just be a spiritual hippie type. But there's this broad appeal to things like Save the Children and Great Awakenings. There's almost a hippie-like quality to it, particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q. And it's getting people in there. But Q is not just a conspiracy theory, is it? It is a conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months. So your auntie's going to be talking about Make Australia Great Again in six months if she isn't right now. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. And continuing on from last week, the interview with Bob Fells from the Gene Ethics Network. You've got a couple of stories, Bob, about other countries. You've got Thailand, Belgium, Africa. What are the stories that you'd like to publicise here? Well, particularly part of getting off the treadmill, of course, that dominates Australian and Australian cultural systems is the concentration of ownership and control now in the hands of very few companies around the world. Bayer Crop Science, of course, which took over Monsanto, uh, there's a new company uh, based on Dow and DuPont, which is naming itself Corteva. ChemChina bought out Syngenta a while back. And BASF has now become quite big because it bought many of Bayer's assets uh, when Bayer had to divest itself so that it wouldn't be a, a complete monopoly. And what we've seen particularly lately is a target on Roundup, which is the herbicide, the most used herbicide in the world which is produced by these companies and now got a bad name for having caused non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in tens of thousands of Americans and presumably also around the world. So Roundup has been a central pillar of the chemical approach to agricultural management, but more and more countries around the world, particularly Europe, in 2022 is going to, looks like it's going to ban the glyphosate-based herbicides, the Roundup, And Belgium has just declared itself, along with France and a couple of others, in favour of a a total phase-out around the end of 2022. At the moment, there's a five-year permission for Roundup to continue to be used in Europe. But when that runs out in 2022, we think that most of the European countries will say we're not using Roundup anymore. And, of course, a lot of farmers are starting to freak out about that. In Thailand, they also banned Roundup last year, but um, after a lot of pressure from the US government, uh, particularly trade pressure, sanctions and so on, and with Bayer having scripted the US objections to Thailand's ban on Roundup, it was reversed. But I, I don't think that will hold for very long. I think in due course, there will be an accommodation. And already we've got some influential commentators in Australia saying that um, the days of this toxic chemical are numbered and that farmers had better start getting a backup plan for when they can't use um, Roundup and other agricultural chemicals, synthetic chemicals, any longer. The the chemical age may be drawing to a close. What's our friend Mr Gates up to to with his foundation? And people have a very positive view of that Gates Foundation and often it's not warranted, is it? 
some of the work that Gates is doing is, um, you know, undoubtedly very influential and probably quite positive. But in the agricultural area in particular, the organisations that the Gates Foundation has been funding are in fact headed off in exactly that um, intensive industrial scale agriculture, which um, in an open letter a group of churches in Africa are now saying is deepening the humanitarian crisis that they have on the African continent, not relieving it. Because, of course, small-scale farmers who are not mechanised and are not dependent at the moment on agricultural chemicals are being pushed by the Gates funding in the direction of a so-called green revolution in Africa to mirror the uh, green revolution which occurred in Asia some uh, 40 years ago. 40 to 50 years ago now, which of course displaces a lot of small-scale farmers. Uh, you get much larger aggregations of farmland, the introduction of machinery, synthetic chemicals, patented seed, and of course all those small farmers end up as uh, marginalised workers or just uh, homeless and displaced in the larger cities. The communities of Africa, some governments and the churches and others of influence see that this green revolution is going in the wrong direction, that it's a major disruption and that it's more important to actually support people to stay on the land where they are and to use the new information about how to do those um, smaller farming systems more effectively is the way to go. You know, throwing those societies up in the air really committing them to a system which, as we've just discussed, is, is on the way out in other parts of the world, the wrong direction. As um, Mariam Mayette, who runs the African Centre for Biodiversity, uh, says the system's not designed for the benefit of African farmers, but for the profits of those multinational corporations that want to benefit from selling the high inputs, which uh, people like Charlie Massey here in Australia are saying, wrong direction, go back, become regenerative, and what we should be doing is to help Africa to be regenerative as well. These um, Gates-funded programs have been going on now for a couple of decades. They've made things no better. They've made things worse. African agriculture should be um, helped, yes, to be more productive, more effective, more robust, particularly in the face of climate change and the desertification of land, but not embrace uh, Western systems which are intensive, industrial scale and completely disruptive in that situation. It's horses for courses, really. One of the roles of genetics network is to let people know what's happening with regulations and changes to regulations for food and agricultural products. Can you spend a couple of minutes spent talking about what's at issue at the moment? Yes, well, there are other um, applications to Food Standards Australia New Zealand and the Office of Gene Technology Regulator that we monitor. One example is up for comment by November the 12th. Food Standards Australia New Zealand is set to approve a new line of genetically manipulated corn. The herbicide-tolerant corn, this particular variety, will allow the rather toxic herbicide glufosinate, which is not to be confused with the Roundup that we mentioned before, but is Bayer's own herbicide. It's marketed as the product called Liberty. 
it means that the genetically engineered crops can be over-sprayed instead of having to be careful about how you spray uh, those chemicals because they normally would uh, damage the crop. When you've got a herbicide-tolerant crop, you can simply bring in the top dresses, spray the hell out of everything, kill the weeds, and uh, the crop stays standing. Now, this uh, particular crop won't be grown in Australia for the moment, but what we're seeing is that we're starting to get in the globalised food supply that uh, foods, particularly grown in North and South America, genetically manipulated and able to be sprayed with a whole raft of these different chemicals are now being permitted to be imported into the Australian food supply. And when they come into our food supply as um, cheap, low-nutrition, things like starches, vegetable oils, even uh, things like colourings and flavourings and emulsifiers, coming into our food supply, there's no need to label them. It's just a, a further degradation, particularly of the processed food supply. All your hamburgers and your all the other junk food, I'd call it, is now laced with um, these new, in this case, corn. Uh, high, high fructose corn syrup, of course, goes into things like um, fizzy drinks to sweeten them. Uh, you've got uh, recently approved the innate potato, which its own inventor denounced as being a dangerous product, now approved for inclusion uh, either as chips or um, as uh, potato starch into the Australian food supply as well. Our view is food stands Australia and New Zealand is not up to snuff when it becomes uh, when it comes to doing a precautionary approach. There's no overall picture about what's happening to our food supply. Each individual product is assessed on its own, approved on its own, and the overall degradation of the food supply, which is leading to a, a supply which is less nutritious, and less healthy, should be of concern to public health professionals and to people at large, and yet it is going under the radar that um, this process is going on. We see it in relation to chemical regulation as well, where the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority uh, assesses the allowable residue levels of the various, literally thousands of chemicals that are allowed to be used in agriculture, that it assesses each of the residues of those chemicals in isolation from the others that are used on the same crop. There's never any assessment of the synergistic or the cumulative effects of those chemicals. That's why we've been very critical of that system of regulation as well. Agricultural chemicals are a major intrusion into the food supply. It's the agriculturalists who set the allowable maximum residue levels in our food supply on the basis of what's said to them by the agrochemical companies about what will work for agriculture. And our argument is that the food regulator should be the one that has priority, that the food regulators should be saying this uh, residue of glyphosate, glyphosinate, diquat, and the tens of thousands of others that uh, are coming into the food supply, that they need to be reduced to an absolute minimum. And then we tell on the basis of food safety, we tell the farmers how much of those chemicals they can use, not the other way around. Finally, Bob, three words, genetics, racism and eugenics. 
this has reared its ugly head again recently, um, of course, even out of the mouth of the President of the United States. Eugenics was very popular in the early 20th century. You might recall when um, there was a whole movement based on Darwin in the 19th century had said that there was um, a contest in nature and it was uh, the survival of the fittest. Others took that model of survival of the fittest and brought it into the social arena and, of course, used it as a model of discriminating against anybody who wasn't white, essentially, or who wasn't seen as um, uh, fit, you know, who was disabled, for instance. And so eugenics became very popular, um, particularly in the USA and Australia, in the first 20 years of the 20th, of the 20th century. Many women were sterilized. There was euthanasia and various other social policies to discriminate anybody who was different. It was based on the idea of genetic purity, and it has its echoes down to today. However, in the meantime, genetic science has confirmed really that um, the idea of pure races with some sort of ancient origins is not based in any kind of scientific fact at all. In fact, recent research has shown that um, with the exception of Africans, because we all came out of Africa originally, that as they migrated through Europe and into Asia and other parts of the world, that in fact humans um, interbred with Neanderthals and uh, Denisovans and, and other human-like critters that were around at the time. As a result, there is no so-called pure white race, no basis at all for that as um, that's really um, is a fiction that uh, suits the purposes of certain people and we see it in the far right race superiority kind of themes that are going on at the moment and I suppose most egregiously we saw uh, Trump in one of his recent speeches say and I quote it was mostly a white audience present he said you have good genes you know that right you have good genes a lot of it is about the genes isn't it don't you believe this is a coded message, really, talking to white supremacists in the USA, uh, dividing the American community, and unfortunately, dividing communities around the world. Of course, we recall that eugenics was picked up by Hitler and the Nazis, led to dreadful discrimination, the European Holocaust, six million Jews, gay people and others um, exterminated. And I just think that we need to call this out, that eugenics and genetic selection and the genocide that were based on those supposed racial differences have no basis in fact at all. And the genetics is being misused to try to support these falsehoods. So we are saying, we are simply reporting the science and the science says the idea of a pure white race especially has no basis in genetic fact at all, that we're all out of Africa, that we're all brothers and sisters, and that we need to learn to live together in our multicultural communities harmoniously and well. It seems to me, Bob, the trouble is there's not enough people speaking out against this far-right push. For many, it's quite a dangerous thing to do. That's the problem, you know. We, we need to say so. Um, hopefully, more people will start to say so when they see this pop up, that we're all related, that um, 
you know, to base a whole ideology on such a fiction and to give it the trappings of science when the science says exactly the opposite, not acceptable, and we need our political leaders in particular to be calling it out. So Trump's message to his right-wing white supremacist supporters is exactly uh, the wrong thing, exactly unacceptable. It's egregiously uh, insulting to everyone who can't be classified as white or, as I call them, pink, because we're not really white after all. We just need to keep sending out that message, I think, that um, we, we all survive or sink together. The globalized world is a world in which we need to cooperate, not compete, in which we need to love each other, not hate each other, just build a better society, not based on shonky science. Uh, we need to call out the untruths, be more harmonious and uh, collegial and loving to each other. Thank you, Bob. And that was Bob Phelps from the Change Ethics Network. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a food not bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs. Org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. When the subject is US President Trump, it's difficult to know if and when he tells the truth and the consequences of what he reveals. If we accept at face value the diagnosis of COVID-19, the consequences, well mainly for his well-being and those around him, could in extreme circumstances of a serious conflict or events seen as endangering the US be catastrophic for the world. I'm talking about the fact that the man is one of a very small number of human beings able to launch nuclear weapons on his sole personal authority. Associate Professor Tillman Ruff is a peace activist but he's also an infectious diseases and public health physician and he wrote an article for Pearls and Irritations titled no one hypoxic or hospitalised with COVID-19 should have the power to launch nuclear weapons. I spoke with Tillman on Friday. As I said in the introduction, Tillman, we have to take the word of this man who finds truth evasive. But then we have a whole bevy of doctors who have and are still treating him. With your medical hat on, as well as your anti-nuclear there as well, can you tell us about his demeanour and the likely impact of the virus on him? He seems to be out of the woods by now. He's about 10 days post-diagnosis. So, you know, that's the main period where if things are going to go bad, you know, you would expect it would have happened by now. Up until about now, it's certainly quite possible for sort of sudden late deteriorations to happen, especially 
in older people with COVID. And COVID isn't just a disease of the respiratory tract and the lungs. It can cause effects on the heart, on the nervous system. It can cause clotting in various organs in the lung, but also strokes in the brain. And they can obviously come on very suddenly, uh, particularly in that sort of period up to seven to 10 days after the onset of illness. So he's probably by now about out of the woods, but, you know, it's a profound element of, you know, his disregard for the facts and, and his willingness to put both himself and many others at risk to acquire this and and then to keep presidential control by all accounts during an illness that could significantly impair his mental functioning is a worry not just for the United States but for the whole world when he can have the sole authority to launch nuclear weapons you know, without having to consult with anybody. Do you know if that's the fact with other nuclear powers, that one man or one woman has that power? In general, that's probably the case for most of them. There are varying levels of involvement of others. Of course, not all of the decision-making authority is very well explained publicly uh, in the nuclear-armed states. One presumes that you know, in North Korea, the, probably the Supreme Leader has sole has authority, but but in every state, uh, you know, there's a remarkable degree of, of authority that's concentrated in very few people. And, for example, we know from some of the false alarms in the past, uh, for example, in 1995 when there was a, a scientific rocket launched from Norway, which had been appropriately notified to Russian authorities, but, you know, the information wasn't communicated appropriately. And then what looked for all purposes from its trajectory and its its pathway out of the water like a potentially submarine-launched Trident missile was interpreted by the Russian radar early warning systems as a possible nuclear-armed missile strike. And President um, Yeltsin was, you know, woken at 2 a.m. in the morning, quite likely drunk, you know, with a couple of minutes to make a decision about, about what to do and whether to retaliate. So these awesome decisions are concentrated in very few hands, and especially when the the forces are constructed and, and deployed so that there are thousands of warheads in total in, in several nations on high alert, so able to be launched within a few minutes of a decision to do so, there's this sort of logic of use them or lose them, particularly in relation to fixed-site missiles, so land-based missiles in particular. Everybody knows where they are they're clearly going to be targeted very early in, in any shooting war and especially a nuclear war. Once missiles are launched, um, ballistic missiles, they can't be recalled, uh, you know, they, and most of them can't be destroyed on, on the way. So if they have been launched, then that's it. They're going to, they're going to land. And, and then the temptation is to use particularly the land-based missiles before any incoming missile strike might disable them. So there's a pr very profound pressure of time here. So, you know, the people who know the most about this, people like Bruce Blair and others who've, who've written about command and control, Daniel Ellsberg, William Perry, former Secretary of the US, who's just published a remarkable book called The Button. You know, they all highlight the extraordinary danger of these, you know, one-person pressured circumstances, limited information, and extremely narrow time windows. You know, that that's not the kind of careful, considered basis on which to make any decision, let alone one that on, on which the fate of the world rests. Talking about Trump and 
he's had an experimental cocktail of drugs. That must concern you, mustn't it? That's this man with, who could have his finger on the pulse. Do you know much about those drugs that he's been given? Yes, some of them are fairly new and some are, you know, some are, are, are old and well known. And he's also taking a whole cocktail of vitamin D and zinc and melatonin, which is presumably to help sleep and, uh, you know, other things that have, that have sort of been publicly said that the president's taking. But certainly he's been on a range of medication, this antibody cocktail, uh, which is experimental, not licensed yet. The safety and effectiveness information is still being gathered so we don't quite know what its full spectrum of side effects might be. One wouldn't expect a lot on decision making capacity until you have the data you don't know. The second drug that he was given remdesivir is an antiviral and that's also extremely new and while on the basis of very limited evidence one wouldn't expect it to have major mind-altering effects. Again this is new experimental therapy. The Probably the most important potential I think I think affecting his mental functioning during illness was that there was very clearly on the basis of what the White House Chief of Staff said and what Sean Cooley the physician Trump's physician said that the president had been hypoxic so low blood oxygen on a couple of occasions late last week that is a very very potent cause of impaired mental functioning and especially in an older man who's obese who probably doesn't exercise enough and who may well have underlying, you know, vascular disease that would potentially make him at more risk, not only of drug side effects, they're generally worse in older people. They're often more likely when medications are given in combination, especially illness may also. I mean, COVID itself may cause, you know, confusion and very significantly impaired mental functioning. And then the final drug that we know he's been taking and likely is still taking because generally you would start and then taper it over a couple of weeks, is dexamethasone, which is a, is a steroid drug, a, a corticosteroid, so not a, you know, one that's used to enhance muscles that, that athletes might misuse. So these are anti-inflammatory drugs that are used to dampen down the immune response because it's clear that part of the pathology in the lung with COVID is not due to the virus itself, but due to the body's immune system's reaction to the virus. And dexamethasone's been clearly shown to to improve survival in people who who have um, severe or critical COVID. So the fact that the president's been given that suggests that he's at the more severe end of the spectrum. And by the way, we also know that his imaging of his lungs showed disease. We don't know how widespread or severe, but he had significant disease and the low blood oxygen is the most important manifestation of that. But steroids affect brain functioning quite commonly. So people can have a very wide range of sort of mood swings. Some people can feel quite euphoric. Swings to depression, they can be almost manic. They can be quite confused as well and even have delusions. And that can happen particularly in older people, especially at higher doses over longer periods. From that point of view, you know, this is not long-term, or but the doses might be quite significant and the combination of illness plus other drugs in an older person increases the risk of those side effects. So actually this old well-known drug of dexamethasone would be the one have the greatest potential to affect his mental functioning and certainly some of his behaviour in terms of being discharged from hospital you know, way before it would be medically appropriate treating any infection control precautions you know with gay abandon 
putting the Secret Service guards, you know, it's a great risk by sitting in this hermetically sealed vehicle, you know, to to show off that he's still alive, you know, driving around the hospital and then tearing off his mask as soon as he arrives at the White House, insisting on working in the Oval Office rather than in the residence. He's clearly putting other people at risk. So his judgment, whatever one says about it in normal circumstances, and, and it certainly leaves you know, is a very profound cause for concern. But it may be that some of the particularly brazen and stupid nature of, of, of that behaviour may be influenced by his illness and potentially the drugs he's on. But the, the situation is that he can put so many more people at risk because he's coming out and saying, here I am, I'm cured, don't worry about anything, you can get over it like I did. Yes, and I think he, I mean, the president has been a source of extraordinary, from a health point of view, just, you know, completely negligent, unhelpful, damaging. I mean, the weakness of the, the federal response in the US, the denial of this as a problem, the manipulating and pressuring federal agencies, particularly like the US Centers for Disease Control, which previously is the biggest, best funded and, you know, very widely regarded public health agency, one of the premier health agencies in the world, has clearly for many months been under severe pressure and the Food and Drug Administration that approves medication. Similarly, a lot of the guidelines and the manipulation of of even the simple measures of protecting people have been clearly deeply politicised. The president has discouraged and made more testing difficult to clearly try and hide the extent of the problem. It's hard to put an accurate figure on it, but it's no doubt that his failures of leadership, sins of both omission as well as commission, serious misinformation as well as not doing appropriate things, have killed unnecessarily, completely avoidably, many tens of thousands of people, maybe well over 100,000 people in the US already. Yes, extremely alarming and irresponsible behaviour. And it's extraordinary. I've never seen the sort of outpouring of scientific and medical clear statements that we're seeing now from the leaders of the National Academies of Science and Medicine, probably the world's most prestigious medical journal, the New England Journal of Medicine, just a couple of days ago in an extraordinary editorial, the like of which I've not read in that journal for ever, basically saying that US leadership has failed the test, have turned a crisis into a tragedy and, and need to be voted out and are a threat to, to public health. This is way beyond politics. This is extraordinary level of incompetence and deliberate harmful practices and policies in, in terms of dealing with you know the most sent- serious global pandemic in a century. And failing the test on banning nuclear weapons, there are a greater number now who have signed, countries who have signed and ratified, but you have the United States and their lackeys and the other nuclear powers refusing to join. You've only got a few more to go, haven't you, before you've got the numbers? Is that correct? Yes, that's right, Sandy. Happy news. It's the one good piece of news on the nuclear front. Everything else is really going quite badly, but which makes this treaty the one thing that is going well even more important. So this is the treaty that the UN adopted three years ago in 2017 for its role in which ICANN won the Nobel Peace Prize, which for the first time puts a categoric prohibition on nuclear weapons. So in international law, the same unacceptable pariah status as biological and, and, and chemical weapons. So that will legally enter into force that treaty once 50 states have ratified it, which means they're now ready to be legally bound by its obligations. So we're now up to, to 46. Malaysia was the 
the 46th, just last week, it's very likely, I think we can be extremely confident that the treaty will reach the 50 before the end of the year and hopefully even before the end of this month. COVID obviously disrupts things um, for governments around the world, but that's on track. There's quite a few governments that have said that they're in the final stages of their ratification processes, uh, Algeria, Jamaica, Indonesia, a number of others have used the General Assembly of the UN to, to very clearly publicly commit to saying that we're, we're nearly there in terms of our own processes. So yes, this treaty will, will become international law 90 days after it reaches those 50. So that will be, you know, hopefully early next year that it will actually enter into legal force. But, but once it achieves the 50, then the entry into force 90 days later is just a set piece. It just, that just happens automatically. Um, so that will be an important development. Obviously, we need a lot more states than 50 to ratify that treaty, but consistently in all of the processes that led to the treaty's negotiation and adoption, there were well over 120 states. So one would hope that it would reach um, over 100 before too long. And, you know, the more states that ratify it and say this is the way to go, the stronger the political and, and moral um, force of the treaty. But of course, civil society will play a really crucial role to use this as an important tool to to push really for, for to getting rid of these terrible weapons, to get financial institutions to divest from weapons that are clearly now illegal under international law and really put the pressure on the nuclear armed states to step up and fulfil their obligations. And I don't think most people realise companies and banks around Australia even are involved in that nuclear cycle with their investments. Absolutely. And lots of people's, you know, banks... Superannuation. ...money that's in their bank accounts and, and the money that's in their super funds will, whether they know it or not, with or without their consent, will be being used. Yes, it's that from the most recent available information, a number of the large Australian banks... Macquarie, Westpac, CBA, ANZ had between had around six and a half billion dollars invested in companies that make nuclear weapons. And on the Superfund side, it's much harder to establish that. But the estimates range sort of between ten and twenty billion, probably, that Australian super funds have invested in such companies. Once the treaty enters into force, that will be clearly, you know, responsible financial institutions will divest of those holdings. Most of them have already divested from other illegal weapons prohibited under international law, like chemical and biological weapons. A lot of them have guidelines that exclude investments in what they term controversial weapons. Well, nuclear weapons, because they haven't been illegal, by many of those definitions, haven't been considered controversial. Well, well that will need to change once the treaty is, is entered into force. And in fact, quite a lot of and growing number of financial institutions have already seen the writing on the wall about that, including some pretty big ones. You know, the Norwegian Pension Fund, which is the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world, ABP, which is the largest pension fund in Europe, banks in Japan. There's a, quite a range of, uh, of institutions that are already doing that now. So once the treaty enters into force, it, you know, all of us should be saying to our banks and super funds, have you got money in nuclear weapons manufacturers? And if they do, take it out. And if they won't, then move your fund, move your money to somewhere that, that doesn't. And there's, there's already six Australian super funds that have said, you know, we won't invest in companies that profit from making nuclear weapons. So there's, there's alternatives where people can put their money. Meanwhile, keep your eye on Mr. Trump. 
I think it's a pretty dangerous time for the world now, especially, you know, one of the tried and tempting distractions that the president might try and foment um, in order to, you know, snatch an election or snatch a victory, even if it's not actually an election victory, is, you know, to engage in some conflict, something that sort of pulls the nation together that makes the argument for, you know, rallying around the incumbent leader, he will engender some um, conflict somewhere that the United States is involved in and, and potentially risk escalation and, and even nuclear use. I think that's a, apart from just, you know, what we discussed about his profoundly disturbing and deranged decision-making capacities, that's a really significant risk for for the world uh, during this, this coming month. Okay, thanks, Tim. When are we going to hope for the best? And work for the best. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you very much. No worries. Thank you. I've been speaking with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff, who's an infectious diseases and public health physician.